to uh, the 4 o'clock service this afternoon was our children's service. And I got to say, they don't do kids' Christmas pageants the way they did when I was when I was a, was a little guy. You know, we kind of had, you know, you had the little sheet on your head, and you came out, and you sang a song, and you walked off, and it was really cool. These guys were amazed. They had choreography. They had dancing. They had singing. They had a camel do a jazz song, which I thought was really pretty amazing. But as I was standing at the back door, um, one of the, the gals who walked in is a preschool teacher, and they had had their program earlier today. They had done the whole, you know, Joseph, Mary, Bethlehem deal uh, earlier in the day, and she said, you know, they were, they were just about ready to get started, and, uh, and four-year-old Mary hadn't shown up. And four-year-old Joseph was standing there waiting for Mary to appear, and I don't know if she'd gotten, you know, sidetracked in makeup or she was a little bit delayed, uh, but she wasn't there yet. And one of the four-year-old shepherds walked up to Joseph and said, you know, I hope your wife shows up or we're all in big trouble. It's pretty perceptive for a four-year-old, huh? <laughs> you know, if God's grace doesn't show up, we're all in big trouble. We are celebrating tonight. We are worshiping tonight. Worship Christ, the newborn king, not because that's our religious duty, uh, but because it's our opportunity to open our, our voices and our, uh, our hearts and our minds, our intellect, to understand the, this thing called God's grace through Christ Jesus, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, somehow gets lost in the shuffle. You know, Mary's running late to the play. We've all probably had that feeling of running late uh, the last couple of weeks, trying to get everything done. I lost a very important list earlier this week, could not find it no matter how hard I looked, ended up with a gift card that I know is not going to be an A-plus tomorrow morning. We've all felt the pressure of the rush. The holidays can, can actually lead us away from these moments where we can reflect. And so tonight it's good that we come uh, and we, we reflect again on how God shattered the silence. Just as a reminder, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, that's been the theme of our sermon series leading into Christmas, is shattering the silence. Because for 400 years leading up to the time when the angel appeared to Mary uh, and Joseph, to her, uh, to her cousin uh, Zechariah, the priest, and announced that the Messiah was coming, God had been silent for 400 years. For 400 years since Malachi spoke, no prophetic voice had been heard in Israel. And now, suddenly, the divine stillness explodes with his joyous announcement. The Messiah has arrived. You remember probably the words, uh, if you've heard this story before, out of Luke. Behold, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For to you today is born in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And with that announcement and the coming of the Lord Jesus the oppressive silence of sin and estrangement from God is shattered. Because you see, it's not just the prophetic voice that needed to be awakened, but rather it was a hope, a redemptive message. Is there a plan from God that would redeem us from the silence that separates us? And we've looked the last few weeks, we looked at the, uh, we looked at the, the uh, silence of captivity and how God restores our liberty. We looked at the, uh, the silence of the lie and how Christ came to be the embodiment of the truth. We looked at the silence of alienation, broken relationship, and how God restores relationship. And finally, last Sunday, we looked at the, uh, the silence of fear and how God restores courage. And, and I've saved either the best or the worst for the last, depending upon how you look at it. Because tonight, I want to talk just for a few moments about what I consider to be the absolute worst silence possible. Whether you're talking about uh, individuals, you know, you're talking about a, a couple, perhaps a married couple, or you're, somebody you're dating, or you're talking about siblings, uh, whether you're talking about communities or even nations of people, the worst silence in my mind is the silence which is self-imposed. 
It's the silence which I purposefully choose because in some way or another, we've gotten into uh, some amount of antagonism with one another. We've gotten sideways with each other. Perhaps you, if, you, if you're married, uh, you remember uh, maybe a few moments of silence when your spouse offended you and you say, you know what, I'm just walking away and I'm not even going to talk to you right now. You know, it's not just a, a difference of opinion. It's not just that we disagree, you know, you like red and I like blue or, or you know, you want to go right, I want to go left, but rather it is a, a fundamental disagreement on moral grounds. It's not that I think you have a wrong opinion. It's that I think you are wrong. As I heard in a, in a movie one time when a, when a character said, you think I'm wrong, and the person responded, I think you're wrong-headed. And then there was this awkward silence where they didn't speak. I asked the, the service at 6 o'clock, have any of you who are married ever gone, you know, at least an hour without speaking to your spouse because you were, you were, uh, you know, you were offended with them, you were upset with them? Uh, anybody want to, and I can't see it, so it doesn't matter if you raise your hand or not. I'll assume one or two people, right? Y'all are a bunch of liars. Come on. You guys that are married, are you kidding me? When Cindy and I, early on in our marriage, I think I may hold the record, four days. Tough not to talk to somebody you live in the same home with for four days unless you're convinced that they are a, a moral failure and you're not going to speak to them because you're right. The self-imposed silence is deadly. It can destroy human relationships. And it certainly has an impact on our relationship with God because, friends, it isn't that God has chosen to be silent with us, but rather it's because we have turned our back on him. You say, what does this have to do with us, Tom? We're at church at 1130 on a a Friday night. Who else does that? We're good people that are talking to God. We're not silent. We're engaging in a relationship with him. We don't really need this particular sermon. We're the the good church folks. There's no silence here. Are you sure? (laughs) Let me read for you a verse out of John chapter 1, verse 14, where the apostle begins to speak about the coming of Christ. And he said the word, and he's talking about Jesus there. Metaphor word is the the, uh, term that he uses for Jesus. And the word became flesh. That's what we're celebrating tonight. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of God, or the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to look at that verse carefully, even though it's late, and I want you to see just a couple things, and I'm going to underline them for you on the screen. The first is this, that John is describing the fact that they have seen the glory of God. Now, think about that for a minute. To see the glory of God had to be something quite stupendous. Moses said to God in the Old Testament, let me see your glory. And God said, I can't let you see my glory because if you see my glory, you will die. You will be consumed by my glory. And yet John says that that the advent of Jesus is seeing the glory of God. But then how does he go on to describe the glory of God? He describes it by two words, grace and truth. You see, the fundamental message of the advent of Jesus, this baby in a manger that we celebrate this evening and we celebrate tomorrow, the fundamental message is that humanity is in dire need of God's grace. We are not morally sound before him. You and I need mercy, not a pathway to self-redemption. We need forgiveness, not a manual on five easy steps on how to earn God's love. This message is a message of man's need. And notice that God responds to man's need, not with condemnation, not with turning his back, not with silence, right? 
Not, okay, you've been antagonistic to me. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. No, rather, he engages us, even when we are his enemies. Even when we don't want to speak to him, God comes to us full of grace. And friends, that's the truth. You can like it or not like it. That's somewhat irrelevant. The facts are that is the truth. There aren't a bunch of truths floating around out there. There's not your truth, my truth, and my next door neighbor's truth. There is Jesus, the truth. But the truth of the matter is that God is gracious and God is merciful. Do we believe that tonight? Do we trust in the grace and the mercy of God and his truth that is found in Christ Jesus? Because you see, to not believe that doesn't mean you go out and you're a terrible person. To not believe in the grace and truth of God doesn't mean, you know, you turn into an axe murderer or, you know, you go out and you're just, you know, you're just an awful person and, you know, you treat everybody terribly and, and you know, you have no redemptive qualities whatsoever. In fact, lots of folks who, who reject this truth, who say, I don't need the grace of God, I don't want the grace of God, they're not bad folks. They're actually probably better than a lot of people who come to church on Sunday mornings or even on Christmas Eve. You see, on the outside, it looks very, very similar to accept the grace of God and reject the grace of God. The difference is profound. It couldn't be further apart than if it were separated by oceans that went on for thousands and thousands of miles. The difference is profound, but it is extraordinarily subtle. I can look like I love God. I can can appear to follow Jesus all the while stubbornly refusing his grace and practicing my own philosophy, which says I'm going to save myself by my own good deeds. I'm going to work my way back into favor with God. You see, if somebody has been affected by the grace of God, if the Holy Spirit of God has worked in your life and you've heard the message of the gospel, you said, that's me, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. I can't fix it. I need this grace. I believe the truth. And God works redemption in your life. Something starts to happen to you, not just in your relationship with God, but when your relationship with other people. And all of a sudden, marriages begin to heal. And all of a sudden, people begin to get generous. And all of a sudden, people begin to look around and say, how can I help somebody else? How can I serve someone else? How can I care for them? But you know what? The person who's trying to earn their way, the person that's rejected the grace of God, looks very similar on the outside. They say, I better be a good person. So when I get to heaven, I can say, God, here's my list. Here's what I've done. How do you know on which side of the fence you happen to be standing this evening? How do I know if I'm trusting in the grace of God or if I am going about this in a way that says, uh, I know that, 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 uh, that I refuse his grace, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I think I can earn it myself. How do I know the difference? Well, I'm going to use a character, a fictional character, uh, out of uh, English literature to uh, try and explain this a little bit. I'm going to put a face on the screen here, and you've probably seen him once or twice before, especially this time of year. Anybody know who that is? Ebenezer Scrooge, just want to make sure at least four or five of you are still awake. These spotlights are really, are, are really in my eyes. Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The guy that coined the phrase, bah humbug. Hated everybody, hated everything, just wanted to keep his money. Made Bob Cratchit's life miserable at every possible turn, okay? He was a miserly, rotten guy that I can't use the term for in church because it would be inappropriate on Christmas Eve to use that, use that term. Um, but, it, but you know what it is. And yet, as the story unfolds, and we know he meets the ghost of Christmas past, right? And then the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And what happens? This amazing transformation takes place. And all of a sudden, there's little tiny Tim, and there's Scrooge, and he's no longer bah humbug. He's, I'm going to help everybody. 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to live out Christmas all year long. Now, my question is, what, what happened to Scrooge? Did he experience the grace of God? Or rather, did he decide that he was going to work to earn God and man's favor? Now, I'm not here to pick on Dickens. He's one of my favorite writers. I read A Tale of Two Cities in ninth grade, and I've been enamored with him ever since. I read A Christmas Carol every year uh, just on my own. I go to the coffee shop a few weeks before Christmas, and I sit down and start to read. But I think Dickens will help me explain this because I think he comes oh so close to understanding grace, but then I think he misses the point. I'm just going to read a page for you out of the story. It's towards the end. I'm going to actually turn this way so the light can can go on the page. Um, And he's at the graveyard, and he's with the ghost of Christmas future. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. He advanced towards it trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw that he saw new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be or the shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed downward to the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the course be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge kept crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? He cried upon his knees. The finger pointed from the grave and to him and back again. No, spirit, Scrooge cried. No, please, no. The finger still was there. Spirit, he cried, tightly clutching at its robe. Hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been, uh, excuse me, must have been, but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? For the first time, the hand appeared to shake. Good spirit, he pursued as down upon the ground, he fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The kind hand trembled. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all year. I will live in the past, present, and the future. The spirits of the three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. In his agony, he caught the spectacle, the, uh, excuse me, the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong, and in his entreaty, detained it. The spirit stronger yet repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk collapsed and dwindled down into the bedpost. Was Scrooge a recipient of grace? Or rather, did he simply uh, determine because of lessons learned that he would now uh, change his way? I ask the question, do you and I stand in the grace of God tonight or do we stand apart from it wanting to earn any salvation that may come our way? Did you hear the words that Dickens used when he described Scrooge's transformation. I will change. I will honor. 
I will keep. Tell me it's possible that I can sponge away the guilt. Friends, there's nothing you and I can do that could possibly sponge away the guilt in our lives that have offended a holy and a righteous God. And tonight, if we stand here ignoring the grace and the truth of God, and we think that in some way we can honor, we can keep, we can sponge away, we don't understand the immeasurable differences between learning a lesson and a changed self that sees that I am hopelessly lost, surrendering completely to the grace of God. Scrooge requests a second chance. The babe that was born in the manger is our second chance. He is our hope. He is our redeemer. Scrooge asks for a partnership with the spirits. Jesus calls us to abandon self-redemption and any idea of partnership, but complete trust in him as our only way to life. One last set of verses I'll put on the screen this evening and we'll be done. John 20 30 through, excuse me, I should be 20 and uh, 21. Um, This is at the end of the book. We began with John at the beginning describing the coming of Christ, the first advent. This is what John wrote after Jesus rose from the grave. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, I'm just going to underline a couple things in this verse so that you may believe. John said, you want to know why I'm giving you this information? It's not so that you can try harder. It's not so that you can work more. It's not so you can try and abate your guilt by some good deeds, giving a little bit extra money uh, at this time of year, but rather that you might trust that Jesus is your Christ. He is your Messiah, the Son of God, the only one that's powerful enough to redeem you, and that as you believe, you understand that he gives you life in his name. Do we believe in this Jesus, totally trusting in his first advent, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection on your behalf and on mine to restore us to a right relationship of God? Or will we choose to live a self-imposed silence, diametrically opposed to his grace, stubbornly refusing to ask for mercy? Only you can decide. Let's pray.